Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišák, and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it is not Russian Pravda. John Seifer is a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, a production firm providing content to the entertainment industry. He retired in 2014 after a 28-year career in the CIA's National Grandestan Service, which included serving in Moscow and running the CIA's Russian operations. So I asked him if he would hire current Russian President Vladimir Putin for the CIA, looking into his KGB's career. We also discussed John's career, the brutal Russian war against Ukraine, spycraft entertainment, but also how deep into Putin's inner circle can the Western intelligence services see. Do you want to know? Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. John, first of all, can you briefly explain to me why and how did you get into the CIA? Everybody has sort of a strange story of how they end up in the CIA. I, my parents were both teachers. I was always interested in history and in political science and political issues. I was, but I was from a small town in upstate New York, and I never traveled that much. In college, I went to London for a semester, and it was my first time really being overseas, and I sort of really took to it. So when I uh, graduated from college, from university, and studying history, I eventually went to uh, Columbia University to do international studies, international affairs. And at that time, when the Soviet Union still existed, a lot of you know study on arms control and Soviet Union and things like that. And, and so the CIA was one of the places that you know that you could go to the government and work where they still hired young people. I did some work at the State Department, and the State Department was intelligence shop was great, but what took people who were sort of later in their career as opposed to younger people. And so I applied to a number of places in the government to include the CIA, and I applied to be an analyst. So the CIA has two big sort of tribes, the overseas espionage collectors of intelligence, and then the analysts who are back home who sift all of the intelligence coming in from all over the world and put it together for policymakers to understand and make better policies. When I came in, I became much more interested in making a career of it and living overseas, and I switched very quickly over to the clandestine service. Maybe a silly question, but I'm sure you heard this one before. What was the most dangerous situation you were proud of and you can talk about? Well, you know, obviously, we try to keep our people pretty safe. And so I never felt that I was purposely put into dangerous situations. But obviously, the US government needs to collect on areas and war zones and those type of things. So obviously, we do work in Afghanistan. We did work in Iraq. We worked in a, in, uh, you know, a variety of war zones. I spent a lot of time in the Balkans during the Balkan crisis in Yugoslavia and found myself in a few dicey situations where they were shooting around. I was in Moscow when the White House was stormed and, and they were shooting up the, the parliament. And I served in places like where we were working on terrorism in places like Pakistan and went to Afghanistan and stuff. So, But in general, you know, we are not military officers. We don't run to fire. We Our job is to sort of stay away from that. If we're in a situation where we're being shot at, we've already failed by that point. So we're in and around dangerous places, but our job is to collect intelligence, to meet people who have access to information that can help us make policy and maybe try to, you know, avoid war, avoid conflict as best we can. Talking about avoiding conflict, 
you said that you were in Moscow as there were shooting in the parliament. How did you deal with this? Means being in the country that is a big power, but the political situation is seemingly going south, and that might have lower consequences. Yeah, it's funny. So I was in Helsinki, Finland, serving when the Soviet Union fell apart in '91, and I was I had friendships with you know Russian diplomats and KGB officers. We were trying to recruit them as potential sources, obviously. So a very crazy time. We were dealing with people in the Baltics, and as the Baltics were trying to move out of the Soviet Union and a variety of things. And then I came back and learned Russian, and my next tour was to Moscow. So I was in Moscow when that parliament w was stormed. And so it was very interesting because you know you could, you'd could watch on the TV from back home in the United States or whatever, and you'd see people on the streets and sort of riots and shooting. But it was interesting. If you went around the city of Moscow... You know, I lived down in the south of Moscow, and our embassy was right near the Russian parliament. So there was shooting and danger. But if you were just a few blocks away, it was like nothing had changed or happened. So it was really interesting to see how the world can watch a crisis and be so focused in on, you know, what's happening. Whereas, you know, nearby, most people in Moscow weren't paying any attention to to what was happening. A sort of world-changing event, and a few blocks away, people are lining up for bread. And, and it was important, and it mattered, and it was important that we cover it. It was important that we understand that we have the right kind of connections, and we report back to our leadership so they can make common sense decisions on, on what to do. And in a situation like that, it's very difficult because spend years and years looking at something and, and get comfortable sort of patterns of behavior. And every now and again, there's changes that, that happen, and we need to respond to them in real time. So it was great fun. It was really important. It, in fact, I was proud to be at places like that, where I could play some small role in, in, in helping people understand. Mentioning your role, your CV said that at the time of your retirement, you were a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. Could you say a bit more about what it means? Well, sure. If you work in the CIA's clandestine service, you're undercover. You, d you don't tell people that you're CIA. But we have a policy here in the United States, when you retire, you're allowed to put what we call roll back your cover. As long as I don't spread classified information, I can write articles, I can talk to people, I can talk to people like you, as long as I understand that I'm trying to protect sources and methods and, and classified information. And I think it's a way that U.S. government tries to make sure that, you know, intelligence services work in secrecy, and they but they work for a democratic government. And so there has to be some discussion with the population to let them understand in you know, basic terms what it is that their intelligence services do on their behalf. Our, our, con our Congress and what we call our parliament overlooks us to make sure that following laws and regulations, but the public sort of needs some sort of understanding. And so in our service, it's it's a bureaucracy like any other. You In your early years, you, you learn a language, you go overseas, you learn the business. We're trying to run sources, run espionage you know, networks, collect information that the U.S. government can't get in any other way. You know, if you can't get information from a satellite or from a diplomats or, or you know, from any, any other way, you might need to steal that information. And the way to steal information that the government needs is from people who have that information, who have motivations to tell you what that is. And that's our job. Over a number of years, you learn a language and you work in one part of the world and you pick another one and go somewhere else. And you sort of work your way up. Management change, you become more involved in managing people under you, leading people under you, training people under you. And you move into a more senior position where you're making sort of larger decisions, the staffing and personnel in a certain area or the kind of policies we should be following or more connections with 
our political leadership to make sure at the senior levels that what the intelligence agencies are doing are what our political leaders expect and what they and getting them what they need. And so as you move up in any large organization, it'll be the same in the military. You move up from being a private to a general colonel to a general. You know, it's a sort of the same in the intelligence service as you move into the more more senior ranks and it's more about leadership and managing programs and people than just on the street spying. Whereas that in our world, you know, the living overseas and doing this sort of on the street work is really what drives us and what's fun. But you do need people to sort of manage it at a higher level. Of course. So let's move to the current international scene. Just recently you wrote for Time magazine that while Soviet Union died over forty years ago, former KGB officer Vladimir Putin has recreated the oppressive brutal security system. And even if Putin dies tomorrow, the KGB state endures. Why do you think that his system might survive Putin? Well, you know, the Bolshevik regime started from a group of terrorists who were, you know, terrorists against the Tsarist regime. And revolutionary regimes often have to create very brutal security services to keep themselves in power. And so when the Cheka, which became the KGB and nowadays Russian security services, took over, it was all about making sure that there was no domestic political opposition to the power, you know, and jailing oppositionists, stopping opposition parties, and then overseas keeping your enemies so that they, you know, ha- are no th- threat to you. What grew up during the Soviet Union was sort of a separate state within a state where the KGB was involved in every other agency and organization and throughout society. It was a massive organization that was all about keeping the leadership and power in the Kremlin and making sure that there was no threat to them. And Vladimir Putin was a career KGB officer, was part of that, you know, asymmetric warfare, political warfare system that had an overseas dimension that involved assassinations and disinformation and sabotage and subversion. And and at home, made sure that there was, the, the people had no real political say. That system has grown to such a place that it has remained a state within a state. Vladimir Putin, even when the Soviet Union fell and there was hope that maybe the KGB piece of this would fall apart, the fact that Vladimir Putin was part of the KGB and he brought all of his old friends, it's become sort of a kleptocratic, but nonetheless very powerful security service that, that protects Vladimir Putin. And so, frankly, you know, that system has an interest in keeping itself in power and keeping itself in a position. And so, they're quite powerful. I think Vladimir Putin has made sure that there's no real domestic opposition to him. You know, even in the Politburo days, if a Soviet leader was not performing very well, the Politburo could find someone else and put him in. Now, that, that, that even that doesn't exist, but there's an informal network of people that he's empowered around him that are come from the KGB ranks uh, that, that have a vested interest in, in maintaining that sort of power. John, if you look at the Putin's KGB career, and his, let's say, skills, would you hire him for the CIA? Well, frankly, what's interesting is I think he was quite a a very small fish in the KGB. I mean, most of his career was sort of domestic oppression, sort of following locals around St. Petersburg, foreigners who were there to make sure. And I think he got a break and made his way to East Germany, whereas, you know, in the Soviet days, the the overseas side, the first chief director of the KGB was sort of the elite organization, people who were going to, to Britain and France and the United States and other places. And surely that's what he wanted to do. But, you know, as far as he made it was to be very sort of a small fry in Dresden, East Germany. It wasn't even in East Berlin. It wasn't even in the capital of, of East Germany. And so he was involved in things that, you know, Soviet smuggling activities and support to terrorist organizations around the world, those type of things. But he was a pretty, you know, low-level guy. 
And we've known lots of more senior KGB people who didn't take him very seriously. But obviously, he had a lot of connections, he had a lot of connections from the St. Petersburg days. And he found himself in a position when the Soviet Union was falling apart in St. Petersburg, where he could get involved with organized criminals and money, as well as former KGB people that eventually, as the Yeltsin regime started to fall apart, it was a place they knew where the, the Communist Party's money was. They managed smuggling networks. And as the state sort of lost that ability to, to deal with those issues, it was the former KGB officers that were able to pull together and use that state within a state to maintain power. And so Vladimir Putin is nothing special in and of himself, but he represents that powerful state within a state. How deep do you think U.S. and the other Western intelligence services see into what is going on in Putin's inner circle? Understanding and spying on Russia is very difficult because, like I said, they've created this massive infrastructure to protect themselves. So operating in Russia is difficult for Western diplomats and intelligence officials because you're followed all the time and everybody you talk to is questioned and it's a very sort of repressive system. It's not different from the Soviet system in some ways, maybe even more repressive and they're trying to hide things. So it's a difficult place to you know truly understand it. But what Putin has done is he's created also a lot of you know people who see the danger of what he's up to, you know, starting a unprovoked war, making Russia weaker, making Russia's economy weaker, making Russia subservient to China. So this is a place where intelligence services probably are in a, you know, intelligence services are going to be able to find more people inside the Russian system who are willing to maybe talk to intelligence services when they wouldn't otherwise, because they see this horrendous decision, which is going to weaken them and weaken their country forever. And they're willing to try to talk to outsiders to try to help fix it. So in a certain sense, we may be getting a better sense of what's going on in Russia than we normally do because more and more people are are willing to talk and, and spy for Western services. It's a very difficult time. It's very difficult. You know, intelligence services are going to continue to try to do their work. And intelligence services in the West are only sort of a small part, uh, added value added part of the political system. And so our politicians in the West and in Europe and the United States and elsewhere are going to need to come up with sensible policies that put pressure on Putin and support Ukraine so that this war doesn't continue like it has since 2014. And even if there's a, a secession of hostilities, it doesn't sort of restart up in the future. And so defeating Russia and defeating Putin is, is, is critical right now. But do you think that there is any chance, and of course I'm heavily speculating here, do you think that there is any chance that some Western intelligence agency has somebody that is really close to Putin? It's very, very difficult to get people in those systems. But sometimes it's interesting. You you, you have a source, someone you've worked on who's, who's, who's working with you, and, and maybe he lived overseas, and you developed a relationship, and he's back in, in Russia in a position. And slowly over time, that person, like I said, in the CIA, moves up more and more senior positions and has the access in the military, in the intelligence services, the diplomatic services, or even in the Kremlin to give us that kind of information. I certainly have no idea that we have those kind of sources, either human or even technical, that can tell us what they're thinking. But it's really difficult because Putin has created this really small group of influential people around him. You know, Patrushev and maybe a couple other people are in the inner circle. I think we saw when the war started that people like the foreign minister and maybe even like in parts of the defense ministry and the army didn't have any understanding that the war was about to start because it's this very, very small group that's been in power for 20 years, a very insular group with very strong you know, opinions that are making the decisions. And, and penetrating a group that tiny and that small is very hard. We saw that with 
al-Qaeda and, and bin Laden, you know, getting people into the inner circle as an espionage question is, is, is hard. And when you do that, it's a great, great thing that can help you, but you can't count on that. On the other hand, it seems the U.S. and other Western intelligence services had a good insight into the Putin's thinking. In the fall of 2021, the war, the war is coming, but many people did not believe this. So it was a good analysis from them. Am I right? Yes, you're right. And the, the thing that people don't on the outside don't often understand is that the real strength of, let's say, the United States intelligence services is how multi-layered it is. It's about our relationships. It's all our friends with in Slovakia and Slovenia and in France and in Norway and all these places that work together and share information where there's expertise and there's knowledge. I would say that a good portion, maybe 75% making that up, 75-80% of the intelligence the CIA gets through its clandestine service is from relationships with other countries and intelligence and security services that help us understand what's going on. So we get information from diplomats, we get information from open source, we get information from satellites, we get information from large data sets, we get information from allies and friends from military attaches. The one advantage the West really has is this wide, wide network of people who are experts and travel and understand and are, and, and understand their own world that, that then is put together to our policymakers. So we don't rely on just like one source from the CIA near the Kremlin. We rely on this massive sort of network of people that are all looking at a piece of the puzzle and trying to put it together. Interestingly, in May, the CIA published a recruitment video asking Russians to share information that could be more valuable than they think. In your opinion, what would be the most valuable info the CIA can get right now from Russia? Understanding a society, you know, it's a very, very complex thing. And we in the West have had trouble in countries where we haven't had a, you know, in Iran, in the past or in North Korea, where there's not a large amount of Westerners or Americans there, it's difficult to understand the mentality, what's happening, what the people are thinking, what, the, what certainly what the government and policymakers are thinking in those kind of places. And so there are Russians who work in areas around communications and tech and military and military production and all of these things that are really potentially valuable to the West as we put together that mosaic, that puzzle. In the past, we've looked for people who have that kind of access, that kind of information in a variety of ways and places. And in the modern society, you know, putting out on sort of a version of social media that's protected, it's just another way of trying to give people that channel to inform or, or make contact with Western intelligence officials. And so, you know, it's not the, not the only answer, but it's just part of that piece of that puzzle. Uh, you mentioned partnership. So is it possible to say how much Kiev relies on intel from the Western partners, but also what Western partners receive from Kiev? Because I'm sure Ukraine has a lot of interesting info and intel about Russia. Absolutely. And, we, and frankly, we should have been listening more to folks that are next to Russia, to Ukraine and Baltic states and Finland and those people who have long experience with Russia. The people who live near Russia understand Russia. And Ukraine has that special knowledge, you know, with the, with their experience being in the Soviet Union, the language, the understanding the culture, that's one just given them one advantage in fighting the Russians is those of us in the West who don't truly understand Russia were, you know, maybe misunderstood or more afraid or thought that Russia was bigger and more powerful than it was. Whereas Ukrainians, they have the knowledge of years and years of seeing 
Russian subversive activity and sabotage and these things and, and cyber attacks. And so they were probably better prepared than a lot of other countries for this. And so, yeah, our knowledge of Russia is benefited by working with those countries and those services in the lead up to these wars. And then we have, you know, abilities that they don't have, obviously satellites and sophisticated technical collection opportunities and maybe sources that can be beneficial so that I am, po- I, I don't know for sure. I'm not working on that. I haven't been for a while, but I would like to think that that connection in Kiev is very important right now, that we're helping them with intelligence to let them know, you know, how, how best to, to, to do this war. And at the same time, I hope we are learning from them because they are showing incredible resilience. They're they're taking old weapons and making them into something new. They're using drones in a real interesting way for the first time. And so our special operators in the military and intelligence have a lot to learn from them as well. How deep can this partnership go? Especially now when Ukraine is trying to liberate occupied territories. How much can Western Intel help? Well, I think it's probably making sure that, you know, uh, you know, electronic countermeasures, trying to hide their equipment and the, their important things that they do to understand what Russian technical capabilities are, to make sure you know they, that they're prepared for you know Russian activity in the air. They're looking at you know movements of Russian troops on the ground. They're trying to understand Russian disinformation efforts, and so it's it's such a broad area that it's hard to say that, that there's one thing and. You know, for example, like in a lead up to the war, telling Ukraine that Russia is going to invade is part of that process. And so you can imagine on a smaller scale now, there might be intelligence saying, we know that, you know, they plan to move in this area, or we know that they're weaker in this area, or we know that infighting is causing a problem on this sector. And therefore, it might be something you need to know as you make your plans moving forward. But CIA is not going to help Ukrainians to... I don't know, to kill Vladimir Putin. <laughs> well, you know, it's against the law for us to actually, you know, assassinate foreign leaders and that kind of stuff. And we and we take that very seriously. And so, no, I don't, I think, you know, we're not looking to cause a strategic problem that's very difficult for all of us, you know, to respond to. We certainly want Ukraine to win. We certainly want Russia to lose. But losing means getting out of Ukraine. It doesn't mean making Moscow fall, making, you know, this is not World War too, but you know, it is about winning and creating a humiliating defeat of Putin so that perhaps he falls, perhaps he goes out of power, but it's not about killing Russians in Russia or taking over Russia in some weird way. And you know, that's Russian disinformation. They're trying to scare their own people that we in the West and NATO and, and elsewhere are trying, you know, are a threat to them. As long as they're not in Ukraine, they're not threatened. If they don't want their people to get killed, you get them out of Ukraine because they're going to be safe when they're in their own country. You explain how hard is it to get into the inner circle of the Russian regime, and you also mention Al-Qaeda. What about China? Is it perhaps even tougher not to crack? China is just so massive. Russia is a country that's losing in the 21st century. They're looking at the world in old ways, and they're trying to overthrow the system because it's not working for them. China wants to own the system. They don't want to overthrow the system. They want to own it. And they're in, so they are using resources and money and power in so many different ways, they become very complex to understand. And so as important as Russia is right now to, to we in the United States, 
China is a complex challenge that's going to be a challenge for years and years to come, probably more, you know, certainly more important than Russia in that sense. Intelligence is just one piece of the puzzle, but you know, there's diplomacy and there's cultural exchange and understanding China. And hopefully we don't get to the point with China where there's violence or there, there's military back and forth. But yeah, we need to, this country needs to invest more in Chinese speakers and people who understand Chinese culture so that we have a, you know, a wider connection with them so that we better understand what's happening there. Because like I said, it's, it's in countries where we don't have those kind of connections where there's been problems over the years. Again, Iran, Iraq, North Korea, those type of things. We trade with China. We have people who study in China. We have lots of interactions with China. You know, intelligence plays one piece of that to make sure our policymakers are working wisely in creating China policy. May I ask, have you ever been ashamed of the CIA or more broadly of the U.S. intelligence agencies due to something the U.S. did? Yeah, and you know when I when I you know I study history quite a bit and I look back. And there's things, certainly in the early years of the CIA, when presidents would use it almost as this secret army to overthrow countries and use it in Iran and Chile and, you know, Guatemala and places like that. And I think, you know, we look back and we see that was a real mistake, the way that we were, were operating. There were fundamental reforms, luckily, in the 1970s that put the United States, put the U.S. intelligence services under congressional oversight, whereas before they almost operated under a president, the president would tell them to do something, they would do it, and, and in the rest of the government, it was secret. There was no connection to the, the people through the Congress or anything like that. From my time, I started in 1986. I can say that there's nothing that I was involved in that I was embarrassed by that I wouldn't be proud to tell my parents or put on the front page of the newspaper if they understood. But of course, when you're operating on the edge, when you're operating in places that are dangerous, you know, there's sometimes bad actors that do bad things. I, I've been embarrassed and upset about certain CIA officials that have done bad things in the field, and they should be punished and even go to prison if they if they misbehave. But as an organization, I could talk about the terrorist, the torture issues where we were taking terrorist issues in and, and, and interrogating them harshly. In a setting where we could really discuss that, they can understand why it came to that, what happened, and that it's not as bad probably as the world thinks. But all in all, it ended up hurting the United States and it hurted the U.S. government even though it was a policy that was understood by the Congress, understood by the president, it was created by the executive branch. This is what they wanted. They even wanted more, but it hurt the CIA and it was an embarrassment. And so yeah, there's pieces like that that that, they're, that I, I'm frustrated by and there's stuff in our history where our policy, you know, invading Iraq, you can go back to all these sort of things that, that you think were that were mistakes in the world. But, you know, frankly, you got to do your best. You got to understand the world. You got to try to put it together. You got to try make policymakers understand it better. And if they don't, you try to have, you know, it's a very complex U.S. government. It's big, it's powerful, and it sometimes bumbles and makes mistakes. And you just, you just do your best. And frankly, if I was involved in something that I thought was immoral or unethical, I would have quit. And I may have gone to the, I may have gone to the Congress. I may have gone to the press if I thought that something like that was happening. John, and one last thing. You're the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment. What does Spycraft Entertainment do? Well, it's interesting. So Hollywood has often used people from the national security space and to come in after a movie is being made to give, you know, hey, to tell them, you know, how do you carry a gun? How do you look? What kind of, you know, office looks like? What we're trying to do is I have myself and several former retired senior CIA people 
we're trying to build content and work with Hollywood writers to, to bring new stories, more authentic kind of stories, either as feature movies, streaming shows, or even network television to take either stories that we are involved in, we know, or old books, articles, or stories from former colleagues. We work with the CIA to make sure that there's nothing classified in any of those things, but we're trying to tell engaging and interesting stories, sort of like the movie Argo or or the French series, the the the, uh, the Bureau or the Americans or these type of things that, to try to tell stories. So it's very it's been very fun. It's very creative and just different. And we're learning about Hollywood and Hollywood's problems and how long it takes to get anything made. But we have a number, a wide variety of projects that we're working on. You know, movies with big actors and and excellent writers, you know, and stories everywhere from the Philippines to Iraq to Berlin and around the world. Now it's hard not to ask, what is your favorite movie, spy movie, or a spy novel? Wow. Wow, wow, wow. In terms of movies, there's very few that really get it all right. You know, I mentioned Argo. It's probably a good sort of it it does take some liberties with the truth but not too much so it's 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 fairly well done our goal is to make to make the movie that becomes the best movie in terms of espionage and so i'll wait on that in terms of novels there's just so many good novels so many good frankly nonfiction books you know if you want to learn about what it's like to operate in moscow for example a nonfiction a real story is a book called the billion dollar spy about a a russian spy who is working for the cia in moscow and it talks about the, all the planning all how we worked with Washington to, to support this person and, and, and get information that was necessary. And there's no shortage of books, movies, and things that are interesting. I, I try to promote them when I can, either on social media or elsewhere. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, See also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.